0: Well, my Instagram account was freaking covered all over with Believe Women stuff. Believe Women! Hashtag Believe Her. Um, and I don't know. I just kind of... Believe... To... I actually find that really condescending. Like, actually, that's what it is.
1: Yeah. No, what's been popping up all over my Facebook feed is just like my... It's just that people are like traumatized by this. They're all re- they're re-traumatized. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Like that's the weird, it's like the reliving of the
2: trauma of the Trump election to like two years ago It's just like what's happening. No, against- but not, not, well, I don't know if this is what you meant, but like not just that. I think that women who have had sexual abuse in their lives, Oh, are trigger Literally, trauma is returning. It's a crazy, irresponsible way of dealing with uh, an electoral campaign, just, you know, what this is about. And people are having freakouts. And I, it was just, uh, I heard... Oh God, don't don't judge me. I did listen to the New York Times oh Daily do you do podcast. So? Well, it's just, you know, it's like, it's as bad as it gets, right? <laughs> just like, it's, it is a bit of a masochistic impulse. But like they're like, you know, we report that a lot of... A lot of um, Congress people have had to hire extra security because um, protesters have chased them to their private homes or encountered them at airports and screamed at them about their own personal traumas. And you're like, oh, shit.
1: Yeah, no, this this is like some really crazy opportunism being employed here. And really, like, the PR, you know master wizards of the Democrats are really good at making people feel like they're actually in danger. Uh, I feel, I feel so bad. Like I, you know, I, as crazy as it is, I know that there's actual feelings happening and I know that, that people actually feel like Brett Kavanaugh is going to sneak into their homes and like be drunk and wasted and abuse them.
0: By the way, it is the one-year anniversary of Me Too as well. Oh, it's one-year anniversary. Yeah, 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 of, like, all of the stuff like this. Happy anniversary? <laughs> no, but, like, you know, just, like, six months ago, I even think I mentioned it on the podcast, like, you know, women thinking that, like, the Me Too was the revolution. And, like, you know, and, like, this positive thing. And i me having was like, this is just going to get worse. This is, like, not good. It's going to be anti-sex. Like, it's not really going to change, like, women's conditions in the workplace. Right? It's not even going to do that. Uh, it's not even about that. It is, the personnel's political is actually did you
1: guys, getting darker.
2: Did you guys see the SNL opening?
1: Yes, yeah. What
2: did you think, Sue? I thought it
1: was alright in like, the humor, and that it was just, you know, sort of harping on like, drunk Irish frat boy trope. That was fine. <laughs> but yeah. there, But that's the part of the uh, hearing that's like, the most troubling, is that like, they harp on his just like, teenage drunkenness so much. And I thought like, I'm really glad I don't like drinking very much because I couldn't imagine what kind of like shit would be thrown my way for being just like a general mess for having a good time. Is that really a crime? Is it a crime to have such a good time? Well,
2: he has to lie about it Mm because what is he going to do? Right? So he's lying about it. He's saying that he's a virgin. And, you know, he drank a lot, but he was a virgin.
1: Yeah, trotting out, trotting out his calendar like, see, I didn't fuck anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I was with PJ. Was with Catholic Kingdom. <laughs> oh, God. This is where politics just turns into, you know, whatever. <laughs> it turns into, like, any sub subreddit. It's yes, the subredditization yeah, it's- of of mainstream politics.
2: The man's going to be instated, it's going to be bad for the Democrats. It looks like a circus, it looks like a show, and you know, it's not working. I don't know. Don't you think?
0: Well, I'm certainly not voting, I'm not motivated to vote, so I'm not going to be a voter. Oh, you going to get some
2: shit now. Everybody knows. <laughs> I do Get not this vote. woman's vote. Some people are going to call you up, they're going to write you letters. <laughs> I was working
0: at The Nation when I told people it was like midterm elections, actually, uh, you know the, after the first Obama when the Tea Party was in place and that was when I was an intern in the nation and they were like they basically campaigned for like four freaking months for the midterm election it was the ultimate like cost for the nation people were at some point like my co-workers my co-interns were like so who are you going to vote for what are you like going to do and what district do you want I was like I don't vote but no yeah I just can't get myself to like ugh it's just like I just like have to vote in, in, in this kind of political system I mean like there's nothing that compels me towards it
2: Well, kids out there. (laughs) I couldn't even have voted for Bernie, right? I wouldn't have been able to get myself to even put a vote for Bernie. Mm. You can go there and um, vote and just like write, put in a blank or put in whatever you want to put (laughs) in this book. You can write whatever you want in it. But I did meet this new lefty old man in the street once. He was selling books in New York and he was like, well... I vote because, you know, people fought in revolutions in order for me to have the vote. And I was like, oh, well, this man has a good point. No, yeah. no, of course. He has a good point.
1: No, I've, I've only voted once and uh, my guy won.
2: <laughs> oh oh.
0: shit <laughs> You voted for Obama No bitch Okay
3: <laughs> what, I did Drop it? the mic We're cutting <laughs> off the podcast
2: okay. Uh-huh.
3: okay
2: I don't know what's happening Susie so voted for Trump
3: Oh okay What you asking for What you back for But is she a man still back A home? He ain't that important you ain't really seen it like that before, not like that before, you like. Mm. When you put it like that, like that, like that, like that, you like. Right. Mm. Nigga, think you gotta like that, when I act like that, alright. Mm. I'm about to have bad track, track, I go about, you right. Mm. You, right. Like
2: you right, you
3: right.
2: Welcome to Shit Platypus Says. We are on episode 11. One year after our first episode. We have two interviews for you today. The first is with Jack Devine, a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, the DSA, who'll talk to us about the strategy of the DSA in the upcoming midterm elections and what it means to work with the Democratic Party, as well as the tasks facing those who want socialism. Then we'll talk to Tana Forrester, who is a member of the Socialist Party USA, On their national committee who will talk to us about building the mass socialist party as the necessary precondition for socialism that is our electoral episode if you'd like to send us some questions that we can take up on the air you should send it to us and maybe your question will be like really good and uh yeah lori and i and susie and other people in platypus will answer your questions on the podcast if you send them to us so you should. But for now, listen to Jack Devine talk about the DSA. Okay, hello, hello, Leuter. Hi, people. Hi um we're really happy today actually because we have someone that we've spoken about on the podcast before he's a member of the DSA his name is Jack Devine and he's been a member of the DSA for about a year and a half or so is that right Jack
4: yes um, well first off thank you very much for having me I'm very happy to be here happy to have you yes and I joined a year and a half ago uh a little bit after Trump's inauguration.
2: Okay, all right. So, Jack is an article in PR issue 109, so last month's PR. September 2018. September 2018 PR. <laughs> yes, Lori, for the record. And we thought that we would use the occasion to talk to him a little bit about his article, The Death Agony of Meritocracy. And since the elections are coming up and there's a lot of talk about what the strategy of the DSA is, vis-a-vis the Democratic Party, we thought we would touch on those issues, and then some, if there's time. (laughs) So Lori, you had a good question to start us off with. Yeah,
0: I wanted to know, why should anybody care about the Democratic Socialists of America?
4: Well, that is a very big question. And I mean, there are many reasons to care. But the fact that an organization in the United States, which we have to honestly assess, the left has been practically dead for decades. The word socialism was an anathema. It has grown to 50,000 members. And the fact that people are attracted to this label of democratic socialism in a country that was inundated in the Cold War anti-communist propaganda, in which the very idea of collective action for the collective good was seen as um, not even just utopian, but framed in an evil sense. For me, I think people should care about the TSA because it's one of many things going on right now uh, in terms of uh, socialist organizing that signifies that people really do see collective action as a necessity to overcome the... Multifaceted crisis that we are in from the 2008 recession, but even going back to really a, a kind of an imperial crisis that I think uh, begins. And I mean, you can trace it before this, but with September 11th and then uh, the Iraq war that you, you start to see a, you know, a young generation who uh, is very disgruntled with the nature of things and that sees things trending in a horrible direction. And I think DSA has been a place where a lot of people who are not involved politically before or perhaps involved in uh, smaller campaigns, whether that be electorally or in terms of direct action with a campus organizing or a union organizing, have a place to go to work together uh, for a vision for a different world, a vision of a world that's not built upon profit, that does not prioritize this abstract notion of individualism, but that realizes that only by coming together through struggle is it possible to make a better world.
2: And when did you join Jack? And why at that time?
4: Well so I started paying attention to DSA in the twenty sixteen campaign. I was I wouldn't say I was radicalized like exclusively through social media, but I you know I kind of developed a, a left-wing politics through uh, academia in, in my college years, it's very much a kind of mm-hmm. downwardly mobile professional class experience. And then mm-hmm. when I uh, had, you know, some really not great workplace experiences, uh, kind of being viciously attacked by bosses. And then, you know, the Bernie campaign to me offered, you know, it's a seemingly proposed an alternative vision of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mm-hmm. now view that vision as somewhat restrained but in this campaign you know i start to see some dsa activists uh, playing a role you know getting out people the vote in the primary and then you know when the sanders campaign failed i see that people were still kind of attracted to the organization and then uh, i guess the clinton loss kind of fully broke my illusion that like mm-hmm. this liberal meritocracy would ever deliver positive goods for people that there was hope in kind of this democratic party establishment and that they had a capacity to make people's lives better. So, and you know, (laughs) Trump really, to me, signified something I'd seen coming for a while, which was this kind of complete barbarism on behalf of the ruling class. And the facade had collapsed that, you know, the, The face of the ruling class as this kind of like oh like you know we we got here because we succeeded not because we're brutal to other people completely collapsed with the election of trump and that signaled to me that i had to get off my ass and go do something about it okay
0: i'm sort of very curious about the scenario of what if sanders would have won won against trump and taken over the white house what would have happened what kind of what would have the government looked like? What would the Sanders presidency look like? How would that have helped advance the struggle for socialism?
4: I think in retrospect, um, it's pretty clear that like the the left in the broadest possible terms was not prepared for a Sanders twenty sixteen presidency. Most of the organizing and kind of like the, and not most. There, I mean, there was there's obviously always organizing going on. I don't want to completely neglect a lot of the hard work that people had been doing prior to 2016. But if Sanders had won, you would have still had a most likely Republican dominated Congress, a very reactionary judicial system. And so what I think would have happened is there would have been probably a heightening of the contradictions in the sense that you would have had a kind of spokesman within the White House, using the executive branch to advance uh, kind of social democratic goals as far as possible. I mean, I think things would be much better for people than they are now. You wouldn't have the deportation apparatus, you know, acting within the same absolute vicious barbarity that it is under Trump. But at the same time, it could have led to people at the time being more complacent. Oh the everything is all right we have this president there's it's a very difficult question and i think a 2020 sanders um mm-hmm. campaign mm-hmm. though i don't think that's what dsa should be focused on right now i think there's a lot more work to be done for me it's always about preparing for the counter reaction the counter revolution if there isn't you know an organized working class force to fight back it doesn't matter how many Uh, socialists or social democrats we elect to political office capital still holds the economic power in our society if people aren't willing to go on strike so but at the same time you know i think to me the biggest development in the past year hasn't actually been like uh and i i do i do think the dsa um candidates are an important development but to me it's the mass teacher strikes and those states would have still been controlled By Republican legislators if Bernie had won. So I think you still would have had the class conflict emerge there. And I don't know, it's, it's a very difficult question, I guess.
0: Can I reframe it then? So best case scenario 2020, right, you take Senate and House seats and mayoral positions, the DSA candidates, enter major important positions in government at different levels, local and national. Then the question is still, what would that look like and how does that help us advance the struggle for socialism?
4: So I would I would see it as this. I, I think it would advance um, the struggle for socialism because I think the biggest, I guess, spur of revolutionary activity is often the overreach of the ruling class. When like popular reforms are attempted and they are struck down by the reactionary ruling class then it can if there is organization among the working class if there is an overreaction by the ruling class say after a Medicare for All bill is passed and signed by Sanders and then the Supreme Court strikes it down this could if people are well-organized, lead to people filling the streets, people going on strike, fighting for this reform. And then in this struggle, they become more radicalized. It spurs people to collective action because this is something that they believe that, you know, it's something that makes sense to people materially and is very popular. And, you know, there is a belief, even though it isn't really true, that, like, democracy exists within the United States. There's kind of a dialectical process of you have something passed, capital... And you know, reactionary judiciary strikes back, and then you need you know an organization or multiple organizations that can pull people in the streets to fight back once that ruling class reaction takes place.
2: It's a good point to come back to your article. I while I was reading the article, I was wondering about your definition of the ruling class and of class struggle. Um, so at mm-hmm. one point you say. Billionaires now have the capacity to end extreme poverty with a mere fraction of their wealth, but choose to hoard it in the nihilistic competition for the world's preeminent exploiter. The regime of artificial scarcity is enforced by an expanding global police state built upon the toxic fusion of the United States military prison industrial complex. When I read this, I thought, okay, I think I understand the thrust of this definition that there are a tiny group of people that could, materially speaking, have the resources to solve a lot of the world's problem. But I guess the question is, why don't they? And is it a result of a personal flaw or is it a result of a sort of systemic inequality? And it seems like how we answer that question will affect how we think of political solutions. So. Can I ask, like, what is the ruling class? Like, how do we conceive of the ruling class and what do they do?
4: Well, I mean, the ruling class, um, if we want to take it in the, the broadest sense, are the people who profit off of the working class, who are the people who are taking in passive income and not working but I mean this kind of I think expands it a little too far because you know you have working class people who have pensions who then take in passive income later in life and have been exploited throughout their life so I mean for me I think the simplest way to frame it is the fusion of the billionaire class you have big finance capital who is the top of the line. People are made up primarily of billionaires. but and You have the billionaire class and then there are kind of corporate bureaucracies and the top lines of those corporate bureaucracies. And then you also have kind of the, the political class mm-hmm. and uh, the elites of uh, military and intelligence. So I think you kind of have this fusion of high-level state bureaucrats, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. high-level corporate bureaucrats, and, you know, billionaires, I guess that if, if I was to break down who is the ruling class.
2: So is the Democratic Party a party of the ruling class? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: I mean, like, I think it's like, is, you know, a city council person who runs on the Democratic Party line necessarily a member of the ruling class? No. But is a high level political operative of the Democratic Party or the Clintons part of the ruling class? Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. Right. No, I think it's an important question because this is where I think that there's been a lot of criticism, this question of is, if the party is an instrument of a class, if, if the Democratic Party is somehow working, as you say, to sort of repeat the cycle, use the state, use the executive force of the state in order to protect its rule. Uh, in this class struggle. The big question, of course, is what does it mean strategically for socialists to fight for socialism with candidates within the Democratic Party? Right. And and what is it, how is it conceived? This is the big question for us.
4: So I think it's like important to understand how the Democratic party and the Republican party operate in a different way than almost any political parties in like advanced capitalist countries in the world they are basically institutionalized within the state apparatus so which makes it far more difficult electorally to construct a third party that can compete because they they have immense power over the electoral process but they are simultaneously also like highly uh, decentralized they' lack Kind of the enforcement abilities that a more like vanguard-esque political party, vanguard not in terms of just like a left vanguard, but like a lot of right-wing political parties. It, they, it's much harder for the Democrats to whip a party line because they're so spread out and like institutionalized within the state apparatus and they operate within so many different, um, like regional constituencies, um, that there are a lot of internal contradictions within the party itself and not just within the party itself. I mean, within the entire ruling class at this moment, I think you're facing an immense crisis. And I think politically, it's necessary to take advantage of this, of these kind of these divisions that cannot be overcome by different elements of capital who are bashing their heads against one another. And so because of the way that the Democratic Party is institutionalized Within the state apparatus It's not impossible always I think on the local level Running on a third party line Is something that can be done And I think should be done And has been done by DSA I mean, I like the electoral campaign That I most participated in And I have a lot of critiques of the Green Party But was Jabari-Brisport's run And we got almost 30% in the general election On our first campaign With mm-hmm. also a socialist ballot line So I think on the local level It is important mm-hmm. to you know, separate ourselves from the Democratic Party. And if there is, you know, there are some states where it's easier to run on that third party line. But for the most part, because of the way that Democratic Party is so institutionalized within the state apparatus, and but is at the same time not controlled centrally, other than really through AstroTurf funding, it both necessitates using that ballot line if you want to get involved in electoral politics on the state and federal level but also does not grant it the ability to whip people in line in the same way I do think you know there are very legitimate questions about utilizing the Democratic Party line and I understand the critiques that come from other socialists so it's it's not something that I'm necessarily happy about doing it just something at this at this point in time seems necessary.
0: And what is the strategy there? Now we can turn a little bit to the upcoming elections, uh, short term at the moment with the elections and DSA candidates like Ocasio-Cortez.
4: Well, it, I mean, in terms of the elections themselves, uh, most of the candidates that we run there are a few exceptions, have been in completely blue districts where the actual general election campaign is most likely not going to be that important. It would be, it's highly improbable that, you know, Ocasio-Cortez or Julia Salazar, who I think has better politics than Ocasio-Cortez, Would lose within the general. In terms of the election themselves, you know, you have there are some races. There's like one race in like Philadelphia that is against a Republican who is the incumbent there. There's like big canvassing operations for that campaign, and that people are you know that's a serious effort that people are taking to win. And then you know you have you know down in Texas you have um, someone running for I believe a district county judge. So you know there's big canvas operations for that. But then when it comes to Salazar and the cortezs campaigns, I I mean, I think they are sending out people canvassing, make sure people vote. But I think the priority for, you know, uh, DSA is how do we develop the mechanisms to hold people accountable? And I think, you know, you can only do do so much internally in the sense of like demanding, you know, and I think it should be that like they have to come back to their local branch meeting whenever they get the chance, in order to maintain that endorsement for the future. They have to keep giving report backs. I think we should be demanding people on their staff, the offices. It seems that it, the, the, the closer it gets, to, the more local it is, the more true that is. It seems that there has been, I mean, Ocasio-Cortez did go to her, her most recent Queens branch meeting, but at the same time, it seems like many of the DSA people were involved in her campaign have been kind of uh, pushed out slightly. So that is an yeah. area for concern. Um,
2: the endorsement of Cuomo. Yeah.
4: Yeah. And, and the endorsement of Cuomo, I think was, uh, one, just a, a strategic mistake. Uh, there's no reason to endorse him. He's going to win. Right. She's not even
1: within right. yeah. the state
4: government. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, if, I'm not sure if it's a reflection of what her politics really are, or some of it might have to do with not wanting to deal with the sort of, you know, media onslaught that you get when you say, oh, I'm not supporting all Democrats. But for me, the real way you hold our politicians accountable is the same way that you hold any politicians accountable. And that really comes down to organizing people in the workplace, in their homes, and getting people out on the streets when it's necessary. The best way you hold powerful people accountable is the strike.
2: But what is this notion of holding people accountable, holding bourgeois politicians accountable? To me, one of the more important things that socialists, at least from the 19th century onward, have thought about is the necessity for an independent political leadership for workers. Precisely. Independent from the bourgeoisie. So not that the workers hold the bourgeoisie accountable for their actions. In some ways, the bourgeoisie acts as the character mask of capital, right? They do the things that capital needs them to do in order for it to exist. And so it's really rather important that working people have the capacity to provide leadership. And I don't, so I, I want to understand what you mean by hold hold the politicians accountable? Like, how would that get us to socialism?
4: In the sense that, um, you know, she's committed to what it is. It is a reformist agenda. Um, mm-hmm. But these reforms, as I was, I was kind of trying to articulate before, you know, something like Medicare for all, you know, even like a Green New Deal, particularly if it contains kind of, you know, proposals in it for like municipal control and worker cooperatives controlling energy, that mm-hmm. these, you know, holding the politicians accountable in the sense that, I mean, maybe holding accountable is the wrong word, forcing these reforms through. Um, mm-hmm. And by, uh, you know, forcing these reforms through, it can spur, again, I think we have to, all take into account the, the, Ruling class, especially on the reactionary right, which holds a disproportionate amount of power within the ruling class. I think there is a a real division between, you know, liberals and I mean, I think fascist is kind of the wrong word because it's I think there's a certain political connotation to like Mm -hmm. uh, historical context of what fascism is, but it's I don't know a, a more revanchist reactionary right way that will, as I think evidence has shown like violently react to such reforms. First, they will attempt to do it through the legalized structures of the court, which they hold disproportionate power over And that what I think is necessary for like an organization like DSA is to prepare, uh, not even just to push through these reforms, but to build kind of real counter hegemonic power that can, if this reactionary right reacts in the way that I believe they will overthrow them when the time comes.
0: Well, it seems that what you're talking about is politics, right? Like like being able to actually carry through politics for change and change things. And politics will come with a reaction. But it's what you seem to be speaking about is something that we seem to sort of have really lost, is even a sense of what politics is and like right, making politics happen is what would create these kind of divisions, reactions and pushing forward of a political transformation.
2: Or well, reform.
0: Through yeah, reform.
4: exactly. Uh, like, well, I mean, for the notion of, yeah, like having politics even for reform was, you know, so taken away. But exactly interjecting actual politics back into it rather than kind of like what's kind of dominated for so long, kind of this like a lot of cultural identifiers for how people see themselves.
2: Yeah, What you put out there in terms of reforms, uh, you just said briefly, one of the things that you said was kind of Medicare for all, municipal control, forcing these reforms, right, through social action. And you mentioned the, the New Deal. And this is something that often comes up once you've had a couple of drinks with a DSA member and you get down to what do you want? What kind of change do you want? What is it that you're fighting for? And I often find myself talking to them about FDR and the kind of transformation that happened through the New Deal. But my question is always, how would you imagine today that to happen? And would a return to a kind of FDR welfare state get us to socialism? What's the relationship between, I guess, an old historical question, reform and revolution, What's the Mm -hmm. relationship between the reforms and the struggle for socialism?
4: So in the sense, like, I mean, I don't think it is possible to return to that Mm -hmm. moment. That's a very specific historical context. And then it's important to, you know, remember that all those reforms were spurred by, um, you know, massive social conflict. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. I would like to get back to that point of massive social conflict. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Not the, the, I mean, the New Deal already happened. And, you know, some of those, you know, the reactionary right has undermined, you know, uh like some of the welfare state,
0: especially in Europe.
4: <laughs> but it still is actually a massive part of society. The goal is not to get a, another new deal. I see pushing for something like that yeah. because it sense of like a green new deal as a means of triggering more social conflict. Um but that is not the ends. I see that as a means um to the end. And especially, you know, We are in a a very different moment. The right, I think, is, you know, in a way less scared of the left. The Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. Uh, You don't have a New Deal without there being a Soviet Union. Right. And so, uh, in many ways, I think the the ruling class is, in a sense, like believes in their bullshit more than ever before. Like (laughs) that. And we also have climate change coming and capitalism cannot survive the climate change without genocidal barbarism the compromise that existed then is impossible i think now
0: yeah cool. thank you jack well that's that was um, very good thank you so much for yeah, your time
2: and we appreciate it yeah. yeah great
4: thank you very much for having me it was great to uh, meet yeah. you guys and talk to you
3: I fuck with you, I going fuck with you That's just the code in my hood, don't let these guns hit you Be a man in your word, don't ever let them play you Stand up for your shit, make sure these haters pay you Can't nothing stop a room full of real niggas I got some bad rich bitches, they my real niggas It's like working four jobs, not to kill niggas My little niggas love to ride by and spill niggas If y'all fell out over some chips, it ain't your real nigga I out over a chick that ain't your real nigga Before I be a house nigga, be a field nigga I gotta pour it off the chick, call it my trail everybody,
0: I I'm here with Pam and joining us is Tana Forrester Hi Tana Hi Hi <laughs> So uh, Tana Forrester is a member of the Socialist Party USA She's actually a chair of the New York City Local Socialist Party And on the National Committee But she's also a workers' rights attorney Thank you for joining us, Tana. Good to have you on.
5: Thank you for having me.
0: So today we want to talk a little bit about the Socialist Party and the elections a bit as well. But first of all, I wanted to ask you sort of what is the Socialist Party and why should anybody care about the Socialist Party?
5: So the Socialist Party is the only independent party in the U.S. that's for the working class. So the Socialist Party was founded a long time ago uh, in 1901. And then in uh, 1973, a split happened which produced the Socialist Party USA, which I'm a member of, Socialist Party of America, and then the DSA. And the split basically happened over whether the Socialist Party was going to remain an independent party from the capitalist parties or whether people were going to go into the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Mm -hmm. the DSA is a split from that. The decision was made to actually cease being a part of a party that sought for the political independence of the working class Mm -hmm. and to go within the Democratic Party to try to, I guess, move the Democratic Party to the left or reform the Democratic Party. So the the Socialist Party comes out of that tradition. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Of breaking from the idea... Of organizing within the Democratic Party?
5: Not breaking from it. It's a continuation of what it was originally. Uh, One of the the main strongholds within the Socialist Party is that almost all members kind of are very anti-working with the Democratic Party. It's a multi-tenancy party, Mm -hmm. but one of the things that really binds people together is the idea of the necessity of anti-capitalist, socialist party, free and independent from the Democratic and Republican parties.
2: Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And when did you join the Socialist Party and why?
5: I joined pretty recently, probably two years ago, approximately two years ago. And I had been, you know, I've been a socialist for a really long time and had been thinking about, okay, what would it mean to actually try to... Band together with other people and um, be part of a political party that was socialist. I mean, just being an in, in independent socialist, while it's a way that I identify, there's not really, it's not like building power. It's not actually trying to make socialist politics a reality in the United States. So I, and like, I think a, a lot of other people, were are just kind of looking for something. We have a lot of people that just joined the socialist party after... I think Googling, like, is there a socialist party in the United States? Mm-hmm. As you all know, the level at which uh, socialist politics is, is organized in the US is pretty low, so mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, including myself, are looking for something where we can try to change the state of politics in the United States and make it so that we're not continuously held hostage by the Democratic Party and their fake left politics. hmm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, What would you say are the aims right now of the Socialist Party?
5: Well, at our last convention, uh, coming out of it, one of the main takeaways and what we were tasked to do, I, I was elected to the National Committee at that convention, and what we were tasked to do was build a mass socialist party. That was something that the delegates at the convention agreed upon to try to put into motion activity that would lead to, like in some time in the future, a mass socialist party. We think that right now people are looking for a place for uh, socialists to gather to try to um, exert power in the world. So that's one of the main things that we're attempting to do. And it's like a it's a pretty tall order. It is a tall order. <laughs> yeah you know, it's gonna, it's gonna take some time. But the Socialist Party has been around for a very long time. And it's gone through ebbs and flows, you know, now might be the time to try to begin this new era of socialist politics.
2: So you said that you're given the task to do activity that would lead to a mass Socialist Party. So what kind of activity are you all working on?
5: Different locals work on, on different projects. There's several different working groups. In New York City, we've been working on this project called Break the Chains, and it's with several workers' rights groups. And it's... Break the Chains? Well, I couldn't hear Break it. the Chains, yeah. It's a national mobilization against sweatshops and Chinese staff and workers, along with several workers' centers in New York City, have this project. And we as a local have been involved in it. And it's basically pointing out the necessity to organize both undocumented and documented workers together, ba- native and immigrant workers, and immigrant workers with papers, immigrant workers without papers, and not to, and for people to recognize basically that all workers are under assault by capitalism. And capitalists. And one of the ways to do it, it's basically comparing the immigration law known as IRCA Mm -hmm. to the black codes. I mean, just talking about how people are not actually free to sell their labor in the United States. Mm -hmm. There are these restrictions which have created different categories of workers Mm -hmm. uh, based on immigration status. Mm -hmm. However, these restrictions don't actually prevent people from working. All that they do is uh, give the bosses a tool to separate workers into different categories and to use them against one another. So right. for example, like if, if you work for someone, they have to pay you like what they have to pay you the minimum wage. They have to pay you overtime with, with some exceptions, but the way that
3: exactly
5: this law ERCA works, it's, it's supposed to verify that you are legally allowed to work in the United States. But most, like a lot of bosses, of course, don't do that. They hire lots of undocumented workers. Don't verify um, that they're legally allowed to work. And then when workers organize or complain, then the bosses are able to use this ERCA law against them to either fire them, not pay them their wages, et cetera. That's one way that that it's used. Um, and it's also used as a threat because those people are all could get their wages back if they sued under the law. But um, People don't know that people are, of course, are like very afraid of like ice raids, very afraid of any sort of like intervention by the authorities. Mm -hmm. So that's one way that ERC is used. And then the other way that it's used against people with papers is that because bosses know that people without papers will work for less in some industries, Mm -hmm. they will only hire undocumented people and will not hire people with papers. So in some industries like construction, you know the wages have been cut in half, for example, or like like deliveries. Chinese staff and workers at mass often use this example where they're trying to organize delivery drivers together, and the del- delivery drivers are there's a group of people from one country that have papers, a group of people from another country that don't have papers, and then another group of people from the same country that don't have papers, and the boss is able to like tier those people and right, how much right. money they can get and. Mm-hmm. They can also use the lowest paid workers against others. I mean, this is a very, right. like,
2: yeah.
5: we, we've been having a lot of trouble describing this campaign to people because <laughs> it's somewhat convoluted and legalistic, but it also is just strike at the heart of, it is true that workers are pitted together by bosses. That's right.
2: Yeah, that's the heart of it.
5: And workers are legal. There's statutes on the books that- um,
0: Make that possible
5: give bosses more power to do such a thing Mm -hmm. and then it's also true that workers themselves because of the reality of the situation will look at other workers and be like yes that person is working for half of what I was making that person is the problem that other that other worker is the problem they're my enemy and so we we've been trying to get involved with these groups have been for the past like 20 or 30 years have been working on trying to organize these different groups of workers together. Mm
2: Union work in the U.S. Yeah, just so just so that um, I'm clear, Tana, the 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 law that you're talking about it's the Immigration Reform and Control Act. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yes.
5: Mm-hmm. So so the ultimate goal of this campaign, which has only just begun, the group of National Mobilization Against Sweatshop and Chinese Staff and Workers and others had tried to um, organize against this law. I think 15 years ago, and they weren't they weren't successful because they couldn't get a lot of. They tried to do it nationally. They couldn't get a lot of buy-in because they see this as the as, as one of the root laws that they should try to get all these national immigrant rights groups around the country to fall in line and get behind and, and push for the um, this law to be abolished. But they can't get the buy-in because a lot of these groups are funded in some way by Democratic Party-backed groups right. or... Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of like grants that are tied to particular things like dot, like just protecting DACA or promoting DACA Mm -hmm. or just doing like certain other types of like very specific immigrant reform stuff. So it's, it can be, it can be very difficult. So they tried that before then they, they now have reinvigorated the campaign. They want to do it again. And so now we're at the very beginning of the process again, as part of um, I'm also the coordinator or the convener for the workers' labor and living wage group uh, inside the Socialist Party. And one of the things that we want to do there is building kind of an outreach network of, of all of worker centers and, and workers' rights groups, where we also have Socialist Party locals to do outreach there. But it's it's all very preliminary, kind of slow
2: going. So can you, now that you've given us a kind of idea of the activity that you all support, How does it relate to this goal of building the mass socialist party? So how does this activity help you do that?
5: The hope is that, you know, all the only activity that you can basically do right now in this like landscape that basically like it amounts to liberal ish activism or workers rights activism. There's nothing about what I'm doing that's like makes it explicitly socialist, except for the fact that you would also be talking to people about the necessity for socialism at the same time while doing this work.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: And that's really kind of all you can do. You can't just tell people like, be a socialist or not do any sort of activism type work. Workers' rights is traditionally, you know, one of the main areas of strength for socialists and the socialist party. But of course, you can have many diff- many different political persuasions that could do this very same type of work. But that's kind of something that we're like learning about right now. Like, how do you marry the two things? Because really, for many people, the immediate goal of, for example, just like getting your wages paid that for the time that you worked or, or getting paid time and a half, like you're supposed to like that, that's what I do in my regular job as an attorney. That doesn't make me a socialist. That's just me like mm-hmm. trying to make sure that, that the laws are followed or something like that. So it's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's tough. That's what we want to do. Yeah. We want to both be doing this type of activity and along the way talking to people about socialism and talking to people about the necessity of having a party that is independent of the Democrats and the Republicans that seeks to transform society to make it a socialist society. And, you know, most people don't have to be told that the Democrats and the Republicans are against them and that they serve the interests of the ruling class. But the problem is there's like the okay, yeah, so I understand those two parties are against me and they don't serve my interests. But who is for me? And right now, the the Socialist Party is not a mass party. It's something that needs to be built. So you kind of have to also get people on board with that that there's a thing that could exist mm-hmm. doesn't exist yet yeah. mm-hmm. and you're gonna have to help build it uh yeah <laughs> yeah and so
0: i really because we had a the same episode as we had an interview with somebody from the democratic socialists of america and uh i think it's very important to ask you now sort of like what does it mean and why is it necessary to fight for socialism outside of the two parties the democrats and the republicans
5: yeah, because with the DSA, you can already see like at any time the DSA, people think that it's like gaining strength or um, there's like a lot of excitement around socialism, the DSA being able to be some sort of power structure within the Democratic Party. You can see how they just kind of get used. They elect Democrats, especially like we just saw that happen in New York using the word socialist. But then... Those same people that get elected then just support mainstream Democrats. They use their star star power and their you know socialist credentials to then bolster the right wing Democratic Party politics. There's no way to make the capitalist Democratic Party into a party for the working class. The Democratic Party is one of the most powerful institutions not just in the United States, it's one of the most powerful institutions in the world. Right. And to think that you can that you're going to use them and they're not going to use you is really wrong-headed. And I know I understand the excitement. I understand like why people get very hyped up about how the DSA is growing and oh, isn't it great that people aren't afraid of the word socialist anymore and things like that? But it's like, what are you teaching people? What are you encouraging them to do? And then from what I've seen is what they are encouraging people to do is go knock on doors to get people elected for the Democratic Party. And then once those people are in the Democratic Party, there's really not that much difference between what those people who have been elected with DSA backing are doing and what a lot of other Democrats are doing. I mean, it also gives people this idea that you can just, that, that the Democratic Party actually is somehow the lesser of two evils, that it's maybe somehow not a capitalist party and that people should continue to waste their votes and waste their time and waste their energy.
2: What does it mean to call the Democratic Party? A capitalist party like why can it not work in the interest of the working class
5: the Democratic and Republican Party. It's not as if they think that capital like that we're in the phase of capitalism and then it's going to be overcome and we're going to have a new society. Socialism, that's not like on the table at all. It is, we're in the end of history. Capitalism is the highest level that we can achieve. And that all that can be done is just making tweaks and reforms to this system. They don't believe at all that there needs to be a revolution. Also, like when you talk about it in this way, it just sounds so both obvious. Of course, the capitalist party does not believe in socialist revolution, and so then one must ask themselves, why would you be allying with this party who is also like fought against well labor unions not just labor unions, they fought militarily against left wing revolutionaries around the world. Uh, all of these is it just sets when you start to talk about it, just it's obviously everything that they do is in the service of capitalism. If you just think about what they are and what what the Democratic party is and what their stated goals are. You can also see pretty clearly that they're not interested in uh, changing society from capitalism to
0: socialism. So, why do we need socialism, Tana?
5: Why? Why do we need socialism? Lori, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah. For me, it, it, because we have everything that we act, need to be free, but yet we're not free. You know, society is an or is not organized for human beings to you know socialism is not only like a necessity but it's also you know very desirable and when you think about why it doesn't exist it's kind of it's sad yeah we have the capacity for every person on earth to be free yet we're not free people have to spend the majority of their life working to generate profit, working to make it so that they have a place to live, they have food to eat. They don't have time to, you know, really pursue all of the great things that have also been produced by capitalism. Mm-hmm. People can't enjoy this life, can't like truly live their lives to the fullest because Of the necessity to labor and not just labor for a little bit but labor for a long time and labor longer and longer hours for more and more of their life and i would say that we need socialism in order to to free people from that i mean there's we have the technology to free people but it is not being utilized in that manner instead it's actually a lot of technology has been either utilized to know, make people work longer, or it basically just puts people out of work. And because there's if if people don't work, then they are not basically cannot live. And so they become like totally dispensable, like automation has not led to freedom basically because also the people who are in the ruling class is not going to use automation in order to free the workers they're going to use automation in order to generate more profit and that's just the logic
2: of the system yeah so it sounds like the way that you talked about the socialist party activity it's one of a long term goal that you have like right now it seems like there's a lot of work to do right but you've made the point that it's necessary to work outside of the democratic party that working within the democratic party actually undermines the struggle for socialism so if you were to have like an ideal like 5 year plan let's say for like what the socialist party like could do at its best potential like what would that look like like in five years like what would you guys yeah maybe five to ten like thinking mid mid midterm uh because you know i think that the dsa right now is putting a lot of energy into the elections but what you're saying is that actually the work that needs to be done is actually outside of the two-party system so what kind of work do you think is necessary what would you like it to to look like in the next 10 years Five to ten years.
5: I mean, it's not just the the project that I talked about and what the New York local uh, is doing and, and can be doing. Is you know, there's all sorts of different activities that different groups are doing that could lead to the Socialist Party growing and you know, speaking to people about the necessity to have an independent. Socialist Party. So the types of activities that that could be done, I would just want the the people within the Socialist Party to take their activism very seriously and not just have the immediate goal of um, whatever legislative reform they're working on or whatever particular change that they're trying to make in their local city, local community, but also have always have the idea that they're also trying to speak to people about socialism, agitate for socialism, but not just simply tell people all the time about how bad the Democratic Party is, because that also is it's a trap I fall into myself. It's you can't just be criticizing the Democratic Party all the time, and not actually trying to build the socialist party. But it's also very difficult to build the socialist party. So what I, would want, what I would want people to do is take seriously what they're doing, but it's also very difficult to do. We all have to work a lot at our jobs, and then trying to be a good socialist party member is also another probably like part-time job. When you're doing activism to actually follow through, I think that that's very important. That's something that I would like to see socialist party members do, like actually make commitments, but then also not to settle for just like small victories, but also Mm -hmm. always keep in mind that the goal is to build power and not just simply like resist all of the terrible things that happen in the world all the time. But that's another pitfall. Everything is just so brutal that people really just want to help other human beings to not have such a hard time in this world and they want to assist them but that can't be all that we're doing, Mm -hmm. but it's also real. Like they, people don't have food. People don't have shelter. You need to help people with like rent strikes, but that can't be the end of the road. Mm
2: -hmm. It's a very important point that you're making uh, that people do want to assist people that it comes from this kind of humanism, but that they often forget as you put it to build power. Yeah.
5: Yeah. And I, again, I would want to just point out I'm, because I know that a lot of people are sensitive about this. I too, have the same critiques of myself. Mm-hmm. It is incredibly difficult to be faced with the misery of this world day in and day out, and then not just be like, okay, I need to just solve this one problem. And I'm going to put all my energy into that and then feel happy if you can actually accomplish that. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to keep all of these other goals in mind. It's, extremely difficult and emotionally and mentally taxed.
2: And yet we must. Yeah.
5: <laughs> yeah.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. That was pretty Thank good. you, Tim. welcome.
3: Bye. 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 I'm living in that 21st century doing something mean to it do it better than anybody you ever seen do it Scream from the 80s got a nice ring to it I guess it's but he don't need his theme music No one man should have all that power The clock's ticking, I just count the hours Stop tripping, I'm tripping off the power The system broken, the school's closed The prison's open, we ain't got nothing to lose Motherfucker, we rolling huh? Motherfucker, we rollin' With some light-skinned girls And some heavy rollers And this white man world so good night, boo-world, I see you in the morning